Hello, and welcome to Sound Waves of Belonging. I'm Anahit Dashgard, and I'm delighted today to welcome Jenna Butler, a mixed race, South Asian and British, Canadian writer whose latest book, Reverie, A Life of Bees, was shortlisted for the Governor General's Award. Jenna lives on a farm outside of Edmonton, Alberta, and just came out of a long bout of fighting cancer in the middle of this pandemic. Jenna and I talk about what it means to find a sense of belonging to the land we inhabit as first-generation immigrants and as settlers on stolen Indigenous territory. We also talk about what bees have to teach us humans, what being mixed race means in a time where racism is such a charged topic, and the lost power of reverence. Enjoy. Hello, Jenna Butler. Thank you so much for jumping on today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here with you. Well, we were just talking before the uh, before I hit record here that uh, this uncanny feeling like I feel like I know you. And of course, we both grew up in the same province, Alberta, uh, within uh, the country of Canada. Um, so we have we have that in common, and I look forward to chatting a bit about that. So I wanted to um, I wanted to talk to you because you are, of course, a uh, a writer. You've written a few books, always weaving in this connection to land and place, and uh, you also teach writing. So I wanted to just start by asking you, why is the land, the landscape, such a powerful character in all of your books? I guess in some ways it's through my own narrative. My husband and I are both immigrants. We're both from away. Uh, he's from Holland and, and I'm from England, although you wouldn't be able to tell <laughs> the accent. So yeah, so just in the sense of building home, it's very much a process of feeling like if we're going to have any kind of right or any kind of um, like a, a, the kind of profound connection we want to place here, um, we want to build it with our own hands. And so that's through this deep connection with land and through that with community so kind of in a roundabout way <laughs> an answer uh -huh. to your question. well I, I think that's fascinating because we also have another thing in common which is we both come from mixed ancestry mm -hmm. and we're first generation immigrants and I think that uh, my background is English Iranian and we also I also came to just outside of Edmonton from Iran when I was younger and What's, what's your background, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my dad is from rural UK, from uh, rural Eastern England, and my mom is from Tanzania, East Africa. Um, oh, yeah, and I was Ishma born in rural Ishmaili? Yeah. Ishmaili? Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so this is something I've been thinking about lately, like how the relationship to land was more challenging when we first moved mm -hmm. because the culture was rejecting of us. Yeah. And, and, um, and of course, there was no talk of indigeneity or, or the First Nations people at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a long time to just really develop a relationship with the land um, in this country. And mm -hmm. so I wonder, when did this relationship to land form for you? Was it there in early years? Did you, when did you, how old were you when you moved here? Oh, gosh, I was very young. I would have been like three-ish, three, four um, and we did the kind of good immigrant thing. We all we came in through Toronto and stayed there for a little bit and then came west. And yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I think I always had a sense of the land because I had a strong sense of the lands my parents had lost, um, particularly my mom. Like she and her older sister 
were sent away from East Africa. She was 14 and her sister was 18. Um, oh. because of, yeah, there was uh, so much violence happening at that point uh, around um, independence and there was all sorts of uh, unrest between a variety of different groups. And so her, her family, were, they were able to send her and her older sister out and then later follow with the younger siblings. But so I had a very strong sense of like the land and um, language and culture that my mom had left behind. And because she was so young, the language really left her early on because there's no one else with whom to speak it, right? Yes. Um, and my dad too, right? So he left rural, rural Norfolk in England and that was where I was born too. So there's all this sense of these disconnected lands and in, in my mom's case, language. Um, and when my dad came to Canada, he worked with indigenous rights and justice. And so, a, uh, understanding and starting to have starting to have an understanding of what Canada had done in its relationships to Indigenous nations was part of my life um, from a very early age and I think in that sense it was a bit unusual because my my colleagues and my peers in school didn't have that exposure and it was very much like don't don't talk about it don't acknowledge it that's yeah. very unusual how did your dad get drawn into that work um through government work and then reaching out to communities so he connected with a number of Indigenous speakers and a number of Indigenous communities in Alberta. Um, and so growing up, I was very aware. I had colleagues and friends in a number of different Indigenous communities. And um, so I, when it came time for when I met my husband and when we started to think, you know, we don't really want to be in the city. <laughs> Neither of us is very comfortable in the city, even though we've both kind of grown up in and around cities. It's because we've had to because of our families and our jobs. Um, we wanted to be on the land, but we also recognized the huge complications of that. So we thought if we're gonna build a place for ourselves, we wanna do it in community, um, in full discussion of what that means from being from away and living on land that's not your own. Particularly, I think in many ways for me, it's very fraught as a woman of color, living on land, belonging to other people of color um, it's very layered, but we also have some really rich discussions with our various communities. Um, so yeah, thinking about the land and living on the land in, in various ways has been part of my life since I got here from England. Yeah. So it sounds like even the farm that you are centered in your life is centered in is kind of operates within a, a nexus of those, those yeah. connections. Yeah. And I, I love how you're speaking to this. Cause I think we We'll talk about so many things in, in terms of a binary land mm -hmm. included to me you're putting forward a model of being on land but doing that in a way that acknowledges the history and acknowledging that history and the fact that the the land was stolen from indigenous peoples um, by building and honoring those relationships right like I, I so I, I don't think it's that we should not kind of live on any piece of land in the country or if we're not indigenous should not buy property or or but it's like if we decide to do that can we do that in relationship uh, I've been going back I was teaching a workshop for the Writers Guild of Alberta a few days ago and I was going back to uh, actually uh, Robin Walkimer's book Writing Sweetgrass mm -hmm. um, just in, in case people haven't encountered it it's indigenous wisdom scientific knowledge and the teachings of plants and you can see all the bookmarks like I love this book, but I was going back to that and I was thinking about her um, conversation around becoming naturalized to place. And I think one of the things I really value about the book is that it's speaking to Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, readerships and it's very inclusive that way. Um, 
and I think it approaches a non-Indigenous readership that feels very tentative about a relationship to place and feels like, do I have a right? Um, I'm here now, what do I do? Uh, I might find myself on a farm or an acreage or whatever, or just being here in this really complicated North America, you know, um, and how, how am I allowed to be here? Um, and how am I allowed, am I allowed to have a relationship with place when I'm not from this place? And, she, and in talking about becoming naturalized to place, it's really... I mean, to me, you're talking about the core of the reconciliation process with Indigenous peoples is like centering place and those aspects around it. And listening. I think that's the big thing that she talks about in the book. And I definitely find, I mean, in my own small practice, and I keep saying to, to people, they say like, you live, you live intentionally out here. And I'm like, I live wholly aware of how little I know. And I guess if that's intentional, I'm, I'm constantly listening, right? Like we've been here on the farm for 16 years now. And in the life of us on the farm, that's a long time, but in the life of the communities, the both the, the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities in this area, that's a you know, drop in the bucket in the life of this land. That's not even anything. It feels long, but I'm aware of my own time scale and I'm aware of how much I don't know. And I think in my relationships with place and also with community, I'm getting to a point where I feel like it's okay to live my life kind of as an apprentice, to live my life as kind of a newbie and listening, 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 as long as I do it with respect and as long as when I do act, it's out of that place of listening, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It does. I write about that in the in Bones of Belonging. The first mm -hmm. essay is about uh, we had to leave the city when the pandemic started. So we moved to, um, had to relocate for a few months to the south end of the Canadian Shield. Mm. And it really helped because while the world was in this massive turmoil, Every day we were out in the trees and among the silver birch and near the river. And I could feel how this is not new for this land. It's new for me or for us as a, as, a, as a human species and certainly in this generation, but it is not new for this piece of land. And there's a comfort, comfort in that. Yeah. Um, so I wanna, I wanna ask you about bees. You wrote a book about bees, uh, Reverie, A Year of Bees, which won uh, a couple of awards. It's a beautiful book about living on the land, your farm, and you deliberately uh, building this relationship with, with bees and, and the role bees play in the ecosystem and how we have all have something to learn from bees. Mm. And uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. One is I, I did not know that Canada was one of the fifth largest global producers of honey or depends on the year yeah lately because like especially with this past some uh, past winter um we've lost so many of the honeybee colonies because of the changing climate so yeah fifth largest on a good year and that kind of swings up and down so probably not uh -huh. so much this year you wrote that Alberta is the largest producer within Canada of, of honey uh but the second thing I want to mention is that you describe watching bees and I did not know, know this distinction either, but between like also wild bees and grown bees um, mm -hmm. and your favorite kind of bee. And you write about them in a way where I feel like I'm sitting on a, I imagine I'm on a veranda beside you and we're watching these little creatures buzzing around and you write in a way that slows time down where, and these, these small creatures become so central and it feels 
it's both reverential the way you write, like, oh, but also kind of heartbreaking. Um, so how did you, how did you notice, start noticing bees and how did they become so central for you to write this mm -hmm. book? I think I started noticing the wild bees on the land. And then because we are a diversified small farm, um, we don't put in large scale monocrops of anything. It's, we have a small market garden, small flower garden, small herb garden. And so putting in a few hives of honeybees felt like kind of a logical extension of that. So we'd have honey and wax and candles and, you know, but we were also really aware, like we took uh, some apprenticeship courses with, with a, a particular beekeeper out of Edmonton. Um, and along the way, we came to realize how much pressure the honeybees put on the wild bees because suddenly you put in 50,000 honeybees in a hive, like a, a really flourishing hive, height of summer, each of those hives will have 50,000 bees. So you put those into an area like where we find ourselves, we are on mostly old growth boreal forest. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the wild pollinators. So when we started keeping bees, it was kind of looking at this, this kind of dance, like how much can we put two or three hives without on, on the farm here without um, creating too much pressure on the wild pollinators? We're just really careful about ecosystems and how we interact with the ecosystems here. Um, so we started putting a couple of hives on, on the farm and then watching what was going on, watching the, the dynamic shift between the wild pollinators and then suddenly these honeybees are here, the domesticated bees. Um, and along the way, my husband has fallen like wholesale in love with keeping the honeybees I'm still really interested in the honeybees, but I started again, I started to notice how much I don't know. And it's a fact that in, in Canada, there are so many species of wild bees. We haven't actually cataloged all of them. So it's, wow. yeah, when you think about big agriculture across the prairies and spraying the verges and spraying the monocrops and things, we're damaging and we're losing species of wild pollinators that we didn't even know existed. So it's akin to in some ways what's happening in the Amazon, of course, it's akin to what's been happening in, with the redwoods and the colonies of specific organisms and the, the crowns of the redwoods. Um, so I fell in love with all the wild pollinators and some of them are decidedly like not sexy. Like if you've ever seen like a sweat bee, it's not like a bumblebee. You wouldn't think of that and think, wow, that's so cute. You're just like, that looks like a fly or something, but they're fascinating and they're so specialized. And I think that's why I fell in love with the wild pollinators as well as the honeybees because they are specialized in a way the honeybees are not, because they're not from here. So the honey, the honeybees, um, they'll forage canola, they'll forage clover, they'll for forage specific, um, ten they tend to be like larger monocrops. Uh, they will forage wildflowers, but the wild bees are keyed into very specific things. So they might forage like lungworts or they might forage willow. And so they are really impacted by their ecosystem and really impacted by climate change because they're so intimately tied. And to me, that was fascinating and um, distressing and kind of, it was gorgeous and distressing all at once to see organisms so closely connected to place and then what we're doing to them. So, you know, when climate change spurs the willows to flower two weeks early and the bees haven't come out of dormancy yet, suddenly they wake up and there's nothing there, right? Mm. So I don't think you can write about the bees. I mean, na by nature, they're engaging and they are really gorgeous. I mean, just watching them fly is stunning, but it's also heartrending. And so when I was writing Reverie, it was like holding these two things firmly in mind, the beauty and 
and the tragedy and the tragedy doesn't come from the organisms themselves it comes from like the more than human world it's from us mm -hmm. yeah and that, that's quite a reality to take in that we're not only destroying species we know about but species we have not yet discovered that's not a statement about the state of capitalism i don't know what is yeah i think that that, that sense too of um the more I think about it, the more it feels like pride really comes into the equation, the sense that we feel like we know better and we approach ecosystems from this sense of um, something that we can immediately quantify and say whether it's useful to us or not. And it always comes around, yeah, capitalism and use. Um, but that, that sense of pride to assume we can en encompass or encapsulate an ecosystem and hold it in mind all at once, we can't, we see it over and over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if you think about DDT and its long-term impacts, when we mm -hmm. start changing ecosystems or, you know, wholesale just kind of spraying chemicals out into the world or making large-scale mm -hmm. changes, mm -hmm. that's a lot of pride. It's a lot of pride. We don't... Um, well, I, it's interesting to use the word pride because I think pride, I wouldn't call it pride. I would call it hubris. Yeah, that sense of just entitlement that we uh, as the top of the food chain are entitled, therefore, to colonize any piece of land or species that lives there whenever we wish for our own gain. And it's the opposite of, I know what every indigenous culture around the world who has relationship to land believes, right? I'm yeah. fully aware that I am part of that. And my, 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 uh, my existence here on the farm is fully part mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. And holding all of that in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's impossible to, to not be in that. I mean, that's the system that we're, we're in. Mm -hmm. It's, I think for, for those of us that are wanting to shift the system, it's really thinking about, well, how do I step out of this? How do I start to change this? What am I going to focus on as a way of changing it? And yeah. um, I'm not on the land, but I'd like to think my work is also part of that. <laughs> like really trying yeah. to create a different level of awareness and consciousness that yeah. ripples out and touches in with your work and that work that others are doing in 50 years from now, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll live with more consciousness and reverence. That's, that's a word I think about is reverence. Um, you know, I think I've been thinking about this idea how in the last 50, 70 years, we've lost, people have stepped away. So many people have stepped away from organized religion as a way of making meaning of their mm -hmm. lives and a way mm -hmm. of offering gratitude for something greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. And yet there's been nothing really that's come in to replace that outside of new age spirituality, which is based, like <laughs> kind of amplifies capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I feel like we've just lost a sense of the sacred of what's, what it means to be reverent and uh, even in workplace culture, like the language of management and professionalism, I just feel like, but at the heart of all this, the beating heart of all this, of what we're talking about is that we just want to feel more of a sense of belonging, I think, yeah. to the land and to one another. Mm -hmm. So um, reverence. Yeah, I love that word. And it does shine through in your writing. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I was just, I was just thinking too, just before that with what you were saying about the work you were doing that was sending out feelers. I was thinking, you know, that kind of connection is so important too. I think about coming out of the pandemic and which is still going on, but I mean, finding our way through whatever the state is that we're in right now, where people have been so isolated for so long and are continuing to figure out, you know, how can I reach out? Can I reach out? 
Um, but the work you're doing, forming those connections being so important. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying about that sense of reverence and reverie in one another for place um, being replaced in some ways by the language of business, you know, the seven habits of this and the this, that and the other. And you think, well, like you said, the beating heart is a beating heart. It's people. It's not, you know, efficiency and productivity and everything. And I think sometimes when we miss the people that are getting particularly worn down and disconnected now, I mean, you can use whatever lingo you want, but the productivity is not going to be there because the beating heart isn't going to be there. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I do spend a lot of time thinking about place and thinking about connection. I know that I, I was, I feel very lucky in the sense that <laughs> a lot of people say you were really isolated. Like you're on a farm, the, the way farms produced during the pandemic was totally different. Like we don't see a lot of people on a day-to-day -day basis, but when the markets were closed and stuff like that, all of us out here on farms were just like, Oh, um, but, you know, I felt very lucky out here on the farm that um, while the pandemic was happening, we were super isolated, but it was like you were saying earlier in our conversation, um, I could get my feet on the ground, I could go for a walk, I could see something immediately in front of me in the more than human world that gave me that reassurance that I'm, it's, I think sometimes with the pandemic, you get so into your own human head, right, and you forget you're just a little blip in a bigger world. And so having that sense of being able to walk on the land and interact with the land gave me that sense of reverie and gave me that sense of reassurance and made me think a lot about how we access place, not just through the pandemic, but afterward. Um, for me, particularly as a woman of color, I think about how bodies of color are allowed or not allowed to access place, how we're made to feel unsafe. I mean, again, as a woman of color who's non-Indigenous on Indigenous traditional territory, um, and I think about these layers of access. And so that was some of the thinking that for me really came out of the pandemic and how we do feel disconnected and how some communities feel more disconnected because of the layers of safety or, or insecurity and how to facilitate that. That's one of the big things that came out for me. Like we are in this space, it is a complicated and nuanced and conflicted space, but are there ways of making it more available again mm -hmm. to our communities um, because everyone's feeling this need for some kind of healing, whether it's interpersonal or whether it's with the more than human world. And maybe this is a place that can also help in that mm -hmm. and, and build that sense of reverie. And I know what you mean. Sometimes it feels like the, the, the reverie or the reverence we would find in community and in a connection to something bigger than ourselves has kind of disappeared into those momentary connections of like a Facebook like or you know, Twitter conversation, we have like these stop gaps that kind of fit in where we would have had something maybe more sustaining before. So mm -hmm. how, to, how to come out of the pandemic or move through the, these stages of the pandemic. I keep saying come out and I, it's not, I'm going to reframe that because it's not over. And, you know, as a, as a medical patient myself, I'm very aware it's not over, but, um, but how to bring people back to one another and to place. Yeah. I mean, we have, we're so land rich here in Canada and uh, this idea that the land can help us make meaning of our lives and put our mm -hmm. lives into perspective is a really powerful one. Um, and how do we share access to land? Because you're right, it's go out of the major cities and you start to see a very particular demographic. Yeah. Um, yeah well, and then you go farther. I mean, the rural communities are definitely not middle upper class. 
I oh. can very much, yeah, blue, blue collar working community, low income. Low income, but, but still predominantly is, white. It is absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm the only, I would say like permanent, um, not non-seasonal labor um, woman of color in my county. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, yeah. yeah, even even here in Toronto, drive an hour outside of the city. You're right. A lot of people struggling economically, but very um, culturally, racially homogenous. Yeah. Um, and so, how do we kind of create more access for people of all backgrounds to to really find that connection to land, yeah. especially to ride through times of crisis that I fear are coming. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you um, have talked openly on social media, and you you mentioned it that over the last year you've been during this time of pandemic you've also been dealing with a can working um, getting treatment for a cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. uh, has it helped um the things we're talking about being on the land watching the bees has that been sort of an anchor for you through this time yeah yeah it absolutely has um and not just in the, the pandemic sense of being very immunocompromised during covid um, um, that that must have been scary. Yeah, well, my, my husband and I calculated one day how many people we had seen in person over the past two and a half years, and it was six because I had been so compromised and also because I had been in and out of medical facilities. So I was a risk to my community, which was a little eye-opening. But, but yeah, I mean, the land and the, the bees have been both very grounding and very healing on a number of levels. Like one, I think sometimes when we're ill, we tend to go inward we go straight into our human brains and we don't take, we tend to do that anyway. <laughs> it's like us, us, us. Um, and being forced because we live off grid. So I have to go out and get firewood. I have to bring in the water, boil the water for a shower, which I then have to take to the shower house, you know? And so being outside and, and, and working with the land and seeing who's around, who's, who's out today, that in terms of the deer and the moose and whatever, which birds, um, takes me out of my human self and it really I found it really helped when I was going through cancer because instead of dropping inward I was constantly forced out like yes I'm aware of what's going on in my human body but I'm also constantly aware of how small I am in the grand scheme of things and I think that was reassuring um, and and very uh, it helped level some of my anxiety mm. and gave me a lot of hope yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you're there and you find that sense of safety on the land in a very isolated place because it wasn't until I moved to Toronto with the racial and cultural diversity here that I felt safe for the first time in my adult life mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't uh, growing up and living in my early adult years in Alberta outside of Edmonton. Because oh, yeah. because of the homogenous culture, because of, you know, the microaggressions and the double takes that happened more often than not when I'd walk into, you know, um, a uh, <laughs> restaurants or yeah, stores or yeah. And I, I don't think I fully realized the impact of that, this constant sort of trigger on the on the um, reality that I'm out, uh, I'm an outsider. I don't fit here the impact of that until I moved here and felt in my body, the sense of, Oh, it's okay. I'm surrounded by people that I just fit right in here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I relate to that big time. Yeah. And, you know, having spent a lot of my, my years growing up in Edmonton, 
Um, and then I moved to Red Deer for work where it was very similar to what you were saying about <laughs> rural Alberta, where you're kind of like, oh, oh, on campus, you know, or just out in the city, you get the, the looks and, and, and often a lot more than the looks, you know, dodging people trying to run you over in the crosswalks and things. But, um, and then moving to rural Alberta, and I would absolutely say, yeah, the, the microaggressions and macroaggressions mm. are pretty profound. But I've often said that I feel way less afraid of, you know, whoever's out here, the cougars and the bears and everything, than, more than human world, I feel way less afraid of that than I do mm. in many cases, a lot of the people who are here. But I'm also constantly working against that in many ways. I think and maybe that is my work and it wasn't ever intentional. I never intended to go out on that journey, but the pandemic in particular and also illness has really made me think about, okay, so I'm here. I'm not going anywhere <laughs> as far as I know. Um, you know, can I start to kind of put that foot in the door in a community that is very homogenized and, and is very white and is often very, very conservative, um, repressively so? Uh, can I can I be that foot in the door or can I join the foot in the door that's just kind of saying like here's a safe space and maybe if there are more of us thinking that way and if there are more of these safe spaces it becomes a little bit less of a shock to see you know my face at the co-op or the gas bar or whatever and then it becomes safer incrementally for people who are coming after me. So in 10 um, years, I can come and visit and live on the farm with you. Because <laughs> you want to, like, <laughs> pride the door open. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm thinking about this again in terms of holding all of this in mind, how, I, in some ways, how bitterly ironic it is that I'm, I'm still thinking my small way through this process, again, being on Indigenous traditional territory and thinking, you know, there are so many micro and macro aggressions against Indigenous communities as well that, you know, and, and here I am as a settler thinking, how can I make things more accessible for other BIPOC people? So just the layers and layers and layers of the discussion and the layers and layers and layers of who gets to be on land and who doesn't, you know, it's constantly cycling around in my head. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm curious to know if you had a similar experience to I did, um, to which I did, which is really feeling like I grew up in the fault line between culture, uh, gender, religion between my parents who were at opposite poles, Persian, British, you know, obviously male, female, but uh, Muslim, Christian, and obviously my mother having more social power because she rep like fit right into the society we'd moved to. And so that was, um, it's just so complicated. I would say I grew up sort of more affiliated with my mother culturally and just racially, but then my experience was aligned with obviously being treated as being foreign and different. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to do the healing work was when I really started to connect, reconnect back to Persian culture mm -hmm. and identity and brownness mm -hmm. um, in a verbal way. Obviously my body has always been marked in that way. Yeah. I think maybe in the verbal sense too, like you're farther along that, that particular journey than I am. Like I, I want to, I really want to learn my mom's language, Kachi, um, but I want to learn it with her and from her. And that's part of her journey where she's, you know, expressed an interest in kind of sharing that and, and, and teaching that. Like I could, I could take the language course, but it's so tied to my experience growing up of watching my mom kind of in, in, in Edmonton in the early 80s 
very isolated, not many other um, East African, not many other Smiley, not many other Kachi speakers in the community. I don't think there were any. Um, and watching her have to decide like what's what's best for my kids. Am I gonna teach them a language that nobody else in their schools knows? Or am I gonna put them in like the bilingual program with French? So I think maybe both of us are on that journey together, but I totally hear you in terms of growing up in kind of the gulf between, you know, it was like almost growing up watching colonialism happen in my parents' relationship, right? Mm -hmm. White British colonial and East Indian from Tanzania, watching the impact of colonialism in Tanzania and then coming to North America and watching it all over again. And Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and growing up as a kid between Ismaili and Christian, and not picking either because how do you pick one of your parents over? Yeah, other? yeah, yeah. Back to the land as a place of spirituality. <laughs> Probably no surprise. Oh. I feel the same way. I, I feel deeply spiritual, but yeah. also unable to 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 choose and gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and would define spirituality as as. Actually, it's interesting. I wouldn't have named it this concretely, but it's true. Like I, I'm in a city, but what grounds me most is that connection to, to the landscape, um, the trees and the flowers. I walk in the ravine now every morning and it's my sacred time. And uh, I mean, there's, we can, and that's a beautiful thing about land too, is that we can find that relationship anywhere we are, exactly. wherever we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always said I'm I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And part of that is very I like a very conscious choice when I was a child, having both religions out there, but neither of my parents wanting to practice over the other one mm-hmm. to pull the kids one way or another. So we were allowed to kind of just mm-hmm. figure it out for ourselves. And I think I would say all of us um, are are spiritual, but we haven't chosen a religion. But yeah, I think exactly the land is you feel at home in a, in a sense, wherever you are around the world, anytime you have your feet around the ground, you can find a kind of home. And when you're mixed race or mixed culture, I think one of the privileges we have is you're constantly having to work harder to find that sense of home because there is no home base or community. I find it still shifts, but I do think that I have the muscles to be able to create it. Yes. Because I've had to work those so hard throughout my yeah. life to find little pockets where I can feel where I can feel I can be myself. And what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So like the home is the community that we build and yeah. And the home is the connection to place, which is constantly being reworked and deepened and, you know, troubled and yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know about you. I find there's something so rich about that. Like so often when people say, Oh, you're not this and you're not that. And you're kind of like, there's that sensitive, you're not this, you're not that, you're not anything. And it's like, no, but this is a really, that, that friction point is a really mm-hmm. generous place because you're constantly asking questions, mm-hmm. you're constantly having to find this little place where I can put my feet and rest, you know? Yeah. 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 That's right. Even, even the term, because I also use it, I identify as a woman of color mm-hmm. and I often, um, because I'm treated that way in the world I was and continue to be. And so I claim that identity as, as because it aligns. And yet inside my own head, I often have the conversation around, well, what about your, your white lineage and mm-hmm. um, the British part? And it's a level of nuance that I don't tend to bring in a lot of conversations because I don't want to dilute the conversation around racism and awareness of those, those structural <laughs> things. But it, it's, 
more and more people are growing up mixed race. And I think there's an interesting, I don't want to exotify it, but there is an interesting opportunity of, you know, if people can be conscious about their identities, that like you're saying, there's a lot we can learn from the friction of containing opposites and sometimes multiplicities within ourselves. Yeah. You know, like often when I'm talking to friends from a variety of backgrounds and they will say something like, oh, you know, you're as a brown person, I'm like, yes, but the part that you don't see is the part where I'm also half white. And I, I hold a lot of, I know that white side is not all guilt, but I hold a lot of guilt from that side. You know, I was also born in England, you know, rural England, mm. um, but I don't get the, the privilege of that side. I'm yeah. holding the guilt of that colonialism yeah. and what it did also within my, my mom and dad's countries and in their marriage. But I don't get the benefit, the lived benefit of that. Nobody's like, holy, oh, yeah, yes. you know, only be half as racist to her because she's half. <laughs> out. What are you, like, oh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I, I find a really uh, kind of a generative friction point there because I, I like I, I can't go all one way and say I, I identify fully with my mom. I can't. And I can't go the other way and say, you know, I have some of the what some of the, the identity and the lived gains of what I would have had from my dad. I don't. But I can navigate both and I can kind of reach out to people from, you know, both backgrounds who are wholly, you know, East African mm-hmm. or wholly this or wholly that. Um, but yeah, you're right that so many more people are growing up in mixed, mixed race and, and that's a larger population. So there's that sense of what is that identity or those identities, what are they going to look like? And are, are people going to be allowed to be holding themselves? Are they going to be constantly forced into that kind of pit of, well, you're not this and you're not that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that we have, I don't know if this is true. I'm just querying this more acceptance in a way of, of, or openness perhaps to non-binary identities, mm-hmm. gender wise, mm-hmm. than we do to mixed race identities, racially speaking. I'm just maybe in the, the, gender um, non-normative gender community that that's an issue too I certainly know coming out as bi and around in the queer community is has been historically problematic more than being lesbian or gay it's perhaps Mm. changing and Mm. certainly in the racialized community it's Mm. there's very you know so I guess in every movement for change it's always Mm. harder to be in the middle I think because there's a perception that you're going to dilute the story of oppression yeah, um, or or di- or sort of dilute like a consolidation of power where people yeah. are trying to gain voice. Yeah, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I fully understand that as a that first wave of any kind of change needs to be so unified. Mm-hmm. But then, when the you know, at what point does that does that solidity get to relax and allow for more difference um, yeah. among the people in the community? Yeah, everyone's allowed to assert themselves as they are. Mm-hmm. having to kind of necessarily be behind a particular um politic yeah, or identity even powerpoint mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah huh such an interesting discussion though oh, my goodness <laughs> well tell me what belonging means for you at this point in your life jenna and closing belonging 
I would say maybe two things and and forgive me if it sounds a little glib because I'm kind of finding my my own way through particularly after the cancer treatments and things but um gratitude I think I don't have a, like a fixed sense of what belonging means because um also because of the pandemic but also the cancer having kind of pulled me out of myself in many many ways physically and in terms of community and everything, but gratitude and also um, fluidity that you have to be um, sometimes gentle with yourself, knowing that you're not maybe where you will be five years down the road in that process of figuring out what belonging is in your own life. And I think like we were saying, when you're between, when you're this and that, and your identity is composed of many things, kind of giving yourself that, that, that gentleness and that flow and accepting where you're, you might end up, you know, mm -hmm. knowing how you belong. And also mm -hmm. and kind of extending that to other people as well. Like if you're in that process yourself, so is everybody else, you know? Yeah. We use that word a lot as well. I love it. Fluidity. Mm -hmm. Yes. Possibly holding the possibility for change, even if people can't see it for themselves. Mm -hmm. I have to just say thank you. It's been such a rich conversation. Absolutely. It's just, you know, you have those opportunities that just kind of light up the day. And this is one of them for me. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining today. Please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, Anahit Dashgard, A-N-N-A-H-I-D-D-A-S-H-T-G-A-R-D.com, where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well, and look forward to you joining next time. Mm -hmm.